Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Hi there, you're listening to Words and Nerds, the podcast dedicated to in-depth conversations with authors about the social and political influences on their writing and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm young adult author Will Kostakis, stepping in for regular host Danny V. You may know me from previous episodes or from my novels The First Third, The Sidekicks and The Monuments Duology. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Amy Kaufman to the pod. She is a powerhouse of Australian middle grade and young adult fiction. In under a decade, she has cemented herself as a vital piece of the international literature landscape, garnering praise, bestseller status, and a heap of awards. Her series include, and I stress, in under a decade, the Illuminae Files, the Aurora Cycle, the Other Side of the Sky duology, the Starbound trilogy, the Unearth duology, and the Elementals trilogy. In The World Between Blinks, the exciting first book in a brand new series written with Ryan Grawdon, cousins Jake and Marisol venture to a magical world where lost things are found and shenanigans ensue. Raised in Australia and occasionally Ireland, Amy has degrees in history, literature, law and conflict resolution, and is currently undertaking a PhD in creative writing. She lives in Melbourne with her husband, daughter, and rescue dog. Today, we'll talk about collaboration, being way too productive, writing for different audiences, and I expect entertaining a host of tangents along the way. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Will. I love talking to you. Although that, that introduction was a little bit intimidating. I'll try and live up to it. Uh, well, let's, let's start with how intimidating it is then. If you want to scratch at that, seriously, 15 books in under a decade. How? Um, it's a good question. Um, I do try and work it out myself every so often because I feel like I should know what, what's making it happen so I can keep going. Um, 
most of it comes down to project management skills and self-discipline, which isn't a very sexy answer, I know. But I, I mean, I'm really lucky in that writing is my, is my job. You know, for a lot of years, I had to fit it in around my full-time work and I'd come home and I'd work late into the evening and it was absolutely exhausting and just so much respect to anyone who's listening who's doing that right now because, gee, I know how hard it is. Um, but for the last seven years, this has been my work. So I get up in the morning and I, I do my writing. I know what's due when. I have sort of break everything down by my, you know, my quarterly and my monthly and my, my weekly goals. And I know each week, you know, got to write 5,000 words on this book. I've got to work on the outline for that book and, you know, get it outlined up to the one third mark. You know, like I, I know what I need to do each week. And I just, you know, how do you eat an elephant, right? Like one bite at a time. <laughs> and now... I'm coming off two novels and a novella written back to back and my brain feels like it's melted. I know that you have amazing <laughs> project management skills, but how do you avoid doing all that work without burning out? Is there a particular self-care ritual? What is it that gets you in the mood to write? And if you just say the love of writing, I'm going to quit this conversation right now. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, look, although I do love writing, I think I always say to people, you better pick something to write about that you're really passionate about because there are going to be points when you're not. You know, there are going to be points when you want to throw your laptop out the window and they'll only come sooner and more often if you're writing something just, just to trend or just because you think it's what people want, you know. The passion helps, but it's definitely not everything. Um, I'm actually a really big fan of a book called Rest um, by Alex Sujung Kim Pang. And it's a book that talks about, you know, it's one of those, it's on the front, it says why you get more done when you work less. And it sounds like, oh yeah, you know, like if you like that, I got a bridge I want to sell you too. But it actually talks about the, you know, how, how much work can we do before actually resting before we do more becomes productive. And I know this is something that writers always talk about when we get together, you know, how do you recharge your batteries? How do you refill your well? How do you do downtime? Uh, but for me, I know that I can write about four hours a day and and that's my max. That's not what I can do continually. And that if I try to write for longer than that, all I'm doing is borrowing from my future account without fail. And sometimes that's what I need to do. You know, if I'm really close to a deadline, I will write longer, but I will know that those hours are going to go missing the following week. Most of the time, I just keep it under four hours every day. But when I'm working, I'm working. You know, I'm not Googling, I'm not wandering off, I'm not talking about writing or thinking about writing, I'm doing it. So, yeah, I'm a wanderer and a thinker, but at the same time, to get over sort of that fatigue, I've set myself 600 words a day and that, you know, in a good hour, I can smash that out in an hour and I feel mm -hmm. really unproductive, but I'm like, great, it's 10 a.m., I'm done for the day. But also those 600 words add up. So you don't go for yeah. a word count total. You just go for time. I do. Look, I go for time, but I think that what you're doing is, is really just another version of the same thing. Mm. Uh, do you know, a friend told me recently, apparently Terry Pratchett used to write 200 words a day. I so, thought, I've been quoting him and saying 400 words, which is why I did 600. Right. But, so that's still, even if you're right, that's 1.5 Pratchett's a day. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's about 
always, you know, if you dig all the way to your the bottom of your well and empty it out completely and suck every bit of moisture out, when you come back the next day, it is not going to have refilled enough, you know, to scoop out the same amount of water. You need to leave some there every time. So, yeah. you know, whether it's me saying, you know, I've done two and a half hours, I've finished my chapter, I know this is good and I'm out, or whether it's you saying I've done my 600 words and I'm leaving now, it's, you know, it's the same thing. It's stopping before you're exhausted because otherwise you're just borrowing money from your future account and the interest is really high. Does that come from lived experience? Have you ever pushed yourself so hard? Like I'm looking back at all of those books and imagining all the interconnecting deadlines and the stress, like, <laughs> tell me, like, yeah. have you ever had trouble balancing your life with your work or were you just did you just emerge you know fully formed as this worker <laughs> bee who makes no mistakes because right now I am seething with jealous rage <laughs> no no I mean the thing is like you know what you did mention in the intro is, is nearly a decade of writing and this is where I am a decade in it's mm. not where I it's not where I was mm. I mean what I when I was writing these broken stars I would work all day I would get home at 6, 6.30, I would spend half an hour having dinner with my husband and then I would change into my PJs and I would write till midnight and I would do that five days a week and then on the weekend I would write all weekend and I was beside myself with exhaustion but I I just had a sense that, like, this was the moment to finish the thing. Yeah. And, you know, and I did and it came out but, you know, a few months before it came out, I got a really simple infection that escalated into something life-threatening. Mm. And I still remember being in the hospital room and the doctor said, oh, this has really taken off really fast. Have you been under any stress lately? And my husband just starts laughing uncontrollably. <laughs> um, and, you know, because like, what do you, you know, doc, you, you would not believe. And, yeah. and that was the moment when I was like, all right, well, this isn't sustainable because this is actually my health. You know, this isn't a good idea. But no, so I mean, this is where I am after, you know, after reading Rest and applying all the principles in it, after reading Deep Work by Cal Newport um, and Essentialism by Greg McKeon and my other two go-to books that I always recommend. You know, this is after, and, and I, every quarter, I sit down and I spend a half day with myself. I go somewhere that, you know, away from everything. And I have a big checklist that I, that I go through to check in with myself. Um, I'm just pulling it up as we, as we talk. Because mm -hmm. uh, the thing is, when you're stressed, you don't think about this stuff. Yeah. So, you know, I ask myself, you know, how are all my projects going? Because I, I track my, my time and what I've done. You know, what did I get done over the last quarter? How does that compare to what my plan was for the quarter? Yeah. I just sort of sit there and think, you know, how am I feeling? Like, what's going on with my health? How am I feeling about the time I'm putting into my family and my friends? Do I feel like I'm you know, reading books? Do I feel like I'm enjoying life? Do I feel like I'm getting to do the fun stuff? And then, you know, also on that list is like, am I getting enough writing done? But it's not, it's not the only thing on the list. Yeah. And it's because I think otherwise, you know, you get into the habit of just stumbling from thing to thing to thing. Mm -hmm. And one day you look up and you think, oh, I'm about to fall off a cliff. And I didn't notice because I hadn't looked up. And we've all been there. Yeah. And you know, I'm, I've been there, but right now I've got a pretty strict system to make sure that I, you know, I have my evenings off and I have my weekends and, you know, I've got a nearly two-year-old who wants a lot of my time and I want to give it to her. So 
yeah, there's a, there's a lot of balancing and monitoring, but it helps. Now, you're somebody who obviously plans your time and your projects and is sort of across that from a project management perspective. Does mm-hmm. collaborating with others make that easier or more difficult? Uh, look, I mean, probably more difficult um, in the, you know, not everyone obligingly works exactly according to my schedule, mm-hmm. strange as that seems. Yeah. Uh, you know, they've, they've all got their own stuff going on and also, you know, just because I hope that they'll take two days to write a chapter doesn't mean they'll take two days to write a chapter. <laughs> I mean, sometimes just because I hope it'll take me two days to write a chapter doesn't mean it takes me two days to write a chapter either. Yeah. Um, but so, you know, it does, it means that it has to be looser around that stuff. It means that it has to be, you know, I, I'm, I'm estimating how much I think we'll get done a month and I'm sort of leaving buffer zones I think that's one of the most important things you can do in any creative planning is mm-hmm. don't make a plan that relies on everything happening in the time you think it'll take yeah you know leave yourself an overflow mm-hmm. um so I mean that makes it more difficult but the thing is everything else about collaborating makes writing easier so it's yeah. a pretty pretty decent price to pay yeah. now the world between blinks is your latest novel it's another collaboration mm-hmm. and before we pull on that thread further I want mm-hmm. to hear your elevator pitch. That is, you're trapped in a lift with somebody for 20 seconds and you're going to leave them gagging to read your book. What do you tell them? Uh, it's kind of like if the kids went to Narnia, only instead of talking animals, it's every single lost thing you've ever heard of, from people like Amelia Earhart to cities to lost dogs to lost socks to that homework that you were really sure in your bag but what you had in your bag but doesn't seem to be there anymore it's um it's an adventure through all kinds of cool historical lost stuff now what compels somebody who writes again over mm-hmm. a dozen books that <laughs> really do feature sort of the discovery of new worlds the frontiers of space what compels that kind of person to look at things in this real world that have been lost and surrendered to myth? Oh, see, now you say that, I'm like, oh, maybe it wasn't a great branding decision, Um, but I don't think about that stuff. I just write what's exciting to me. No, I think think there's a thread between them because there's still that sort of discovery of the unknown or what we yearn Mm -hmm. to know. So I think it's, you know, if we have to do that horrible cursed word, you know, brand, this is all very much on brand. But Yeah, but... I know why... I know why I would write about lost things, but I want to know what would have compelled you to write about lost things. Uh, look, it's a it's a coming together of a few things. The first is that I'm a giant history nerd. You know, my first degree was history. I I read and watch and learn about history for fun. So yeah. going yeah. back to doing the historical research was super fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, add to that was uh, the opportunity to write with Ryan, mm-hmm. whose writing I just think is just knocks my socks off and so that was an opportunity I didn't want to pass up Mm -hmm. uh add to that uh that there's always there's always a question you're asking when you write a book you don't always know what it is when you start or at least I don't always know what it is I sometimes I look back and find out what I was wondering about and for me it was time to write a book about loss 
Yeah. Uh, you know, I lost my dad a few years ago and, and Ryan lost her mum, not unexpectedly, but, you know, still awfully uh, while we were writing the book. And it was for both of us, it was time to write a book about the fact that, you know, there are, it's something we still wrestle with right into adulthood. I think the fact that some some things that we lose, we're meant to let go of and some of them we're meant to try and hold on to. And, you know, we have the idea that we have to try and figure out the difference between those two things that we have to try and learn when to hold on and when to let go. And, you know, not just to people who have died, but, you know, even just if you're a kid who's moving school or moving house or, you know, something in your life is changing, you've got to sort of figure out how much do you hold on to and how much do you let go of. Yeah. Um, and then the, the, the fourth of the, the four things that came together was just an absolute killer story prompt. And I, uh, something I just simply couldn't walk past because it just, it gave me that magic feeling that you get. Yeah. Now, Ryan is your latest collaborator, others being mm-hmm. Jay Kristoff and Megan Spooner. What yeah. makes for a good collaborator and what, when you meet dozens of authors a year, separates mm-hmm. a peer or potential nemesis from a collaborator? Oh, well, I don't have a nemesis. Oh, yeah, well, I ha- clearly haven't been sort of laughing maniacally <laughs> on the edge of the stage of speaking enough. I will. No, well, exactly what I will. I will be, well, I'll be your wacky, waste, wacky races villain. Just <laughs> Amazing. Well, I mean, not having a nemesis is exactly what I would say if I was just waiting to catch them unawares, I suppose. Exactly. Um, but I don't know. It's a funny thing, you know, I, because before I was a writer, I was a mediator. Mm-hmm. And one of the thing, one of the skills that you gain as a mediator is your gut instinct about people becomes really reliable mm-hmm. because you walk into a room with people who you've never met before, and they're usually, you know, at one of the worst times in their lives. They're they're deep in a conflict about something that they care about a lot, mm-hmm. and you know, I don't know about you, but like I'm not my best self when that's what's going on, and you I have to decide. <laughs> so you're fine (laughs) Um, but you have to decide almost immediately you know how do I serve this person is this someone who needs me to be pretty stern and help them stay on track or is this someone who needs a lot of empathy or is this someone who is going to you know respond well if I break the tension for them by laughing you know does this person need you know, help guiding them through decision-making so they can really narrow in on what they want or are they really confident about what they want and they need help figuring out how to frame it and communicate it well and in some cases how to calm down enough to do that. And so you make that decision pretty fast and you then get the next few hours while you mediate for them to find out if you were right or not. And so it's an endless feedback loop of figuring out who people are. Mm -hmm. And... It's why I tend to make friends really quickly now, I think. I mean, it's why when we met Will, I was like, oh, we're friends now. Uh, it's because That's it, it also takes... because I'm a horrible oversharer and probably told you 20 things you're going to need counselling to forget. <laughs> I'm, well, I mean, this is the other skill that a mediator has, right? <laughs> Very good at holding <laughs> on to it. But, but no, you know, you, you, get, you get that instant feedback loop. And so I think I do... It sounds silly, but I tend to meet people and I can just tell whether, which is so unhelpful, but I can just tell whether they're going to be good or not. But the sort of things you're looking for are, you know, do they listen when you talk? And, you know, do they love your writing as much as you love their writing? And 
do they get excited when you improve on one of their ideas and do you get excited when they improve on one of yours or do they, they, they know how they want it to be and, you know, they, they're pretty, pretty solid on that, which is fine. It just means that they might not be the right collaborator. Mm-hmm. You know, you're looking for someone who likes building a playground together and then playing in it instead yeah. of someone who either wants you to call the shots or wants to call the shots themselves. Yeah. Now, your previous foray into middle grade, the Delightful Elementals trilogy, was the second time after your contribution to the Begin and Begin, A Love Was Way anthology, that readers could read a story with your name on it and know that you wrote every word and there wasn't sort of a question of, oh, did Jay do this? Did Megan do this? How can you tell if the germ of an idea is something you want to work on with someone else or something you want to keep for yourself? Oh, gee, that's a really good question. Because um, I'm, I'm working on a, a solo YA at the moment and I'm trying to think about how I knew it was for me rather than one to, one to suggest to someone. Um, and I was going to say something, you know, wise, like, oh, you know, I think perhaps it's if I, if it comes to me with all the pieces, then I know it's for me. And if it comes you know, to me knowing that, um, you know, with, without some pieces that I think someone else could fit in, maybe it's for collaborating. But then the truth is with this solo YA, I'm finally underway with it, but I've been trying to write the damn thing since 2013. So I clearly didn't have all the pieces to start off. Uh, it, it took me a not, really long time. Not to want to share it? No, I think I just, um, with that one in particular, I think it's because there's so much sailing involved and, and so much of it is set on boats yeah. And that's where I grew up. You know, I took my first steps on a boat. I think I just knew that, you know, I, I think that probably comes back to what I said about you want someone who wants to build a playground and play with you rather than yeah. one of you being in charge. And I think I thought I think I would want to be in charge because I would know more. Yeah. And and that's not, you know, that's not the way you want to do it. You don't want a writer and an assistant. Yeah. You mentioned... <laughs> bringing an idea to somebody is does that lead us to believe that you have brought all of your ideas to your collaborators or no, say, no. <laughs> not say at all the latest book the world mm-hmm. between links how does how did that idea come about was it a conversation was it a oh i have a germ of an idea i'm going to talk to someone else and it fits in with their germ of a different idea that we can combine how did it come about <laughs> Well, so this one came about because uh, Ryan and I were already friends and we we share a literary agent, Tracy Adams, and Tracy popped this cool little article that she had seen um, up on her, her private Facebook page and it was about an island that had formed off the coast of her home state of North Carolina. Yeah. It was just, you know, like wind, wind and currents and a sandbar and sort of things that all sort of conspired to create this temporary island off the coast. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the National Park Service had started fielding questions about who it belonged to because it was off the coast of a national park. And yeah. they said, um, if, if a land bridge forms and it joins the national park, it will be ours. But right now it is actually an unclaimed island. But nobody get too excited because its only population is a couple of hardy plants and some, some shark's teeth and a whale bone and it will be gone again soon. It will go back to the sea. And Tracy posted this up and she said, you know, an island that's only here for a short while and then gone forever. Authors, you know what to do. Yeah. And I said, oh, my goodness, I do. I do know what to do. I, I, something in that just instantly grabbed me. And then Ryan said, wow, do we ever? And Tracy said, not you two. You're busy. Stop it. And 
then Ryan produced this lighthouse that is, it is the lighthouse from the start of The World Between Blinks. It's a real lighthouse that is off the coast of her home state of South Carolina mm-hmm. that used to stand on this piece of land that was so big they fought a civil war battle on it. But now, thanks to tides and erosion, all of the land is gone and the lighthouse just rises up out of the ocean, you know, guarding a land that isn't there anymore, which is so cool. Mm -hmm. And Tracy said, I mean it, you two are busy. And we said, yes, Tracy. And then I emailed Ryan just a one-liner saying, but we're going to write a story, right? And she emailed back all caps two minutes later, yes. And um so I emailed her back and I said, I don't, I don't know what it is, but, you know, it's a, it's a lost land kind of story, isn't it? It's, you know, lost things are there and it just snowballed immediately from yeah. there. We started making lists of all the cool lost things that we knew. And then a couple of days later, she sent me the little prologue and said, is this something? Is this, is this the start? And we had it. Yeah. It was, it was just there ready to go. And it was definitely an example of a story that, we didn't have all of the pieces ourselves. As soon as we started talking and bouncing off each other, it just sprang to life. Yeah, and it's that that idea of talking to each other is what brings it about. It reminds me of sort of the best sort of collaborative exercises at school where most mm-hmm. of them were horrible, but there was that sort of lightning strike moment where, you know, one or yep. two in six years weren't painful (laughs) something really special would happen and you know I mean you and I have have seen it in action on solo books as well you know like we've been on writing retreats where a whole bunch of writers you know hole up in a in the before times uh you know hole up in a a holiday house for a few days and and all work in our own projects but at lunchtime someone will say oh so this, this and this are happening and I just feel like, you know, how do I get that confrontation to go? And suddenly 10 writers are all brainstorming and somewhere in there is the spark. That's that's yeah. always really fun to do. But the difference there is that people are almost sort of just tossing ideas to the author and they can catch whichever of those balls they want, but they can also just let them sail by. Now, well, I imagine the way you work with each of your collaborators is different. So what is different about the way you work with Ryan and how do you think that manifests on the page? Um, oh, it's a good question. I mean, we look, we do, I'd say they do all have more similarities than differences mm-hmm. in that, you know, fundamentally we outline a book together and then we pass the manuscript back and forth and, and work on it. Yeah. Um, when it came to writing with Ryan, I mean, one of the first things Ryan said was, okay, you've done heaps of collaboration. Like, talk to me, tell me. Tell me what goes well. Uh, And we were really lucky to be able to do a lot of our brainstorming together, uh, which made a huge difference. I was with Meg and I are working on the sequel to The Other Side of the Sky at the moment. And at one point I looked at her and I said on video chat, I said, why is this so hard today? And she suddenly lit up and she said, it's because we're not in the same place and we haven't been able to work on this book in the same place. And usually we'll just sit there all day you know, you talk, you break apart, you start talking about TV, you come back to the book, you have lunch, you talk about the book again. Whereas trying to do it all in one hit because you're on a video chat for that purpose is very different. Yeah. Um, Ryan, I was in New York for something, I want to say maybe Obsidio on tour, mm-hmm. and Ryan flew in and crashed in my hotel room and we literally got this big pack of index cards and wrote down everything we could think of, like all the lost things that we had managed to brainstorm and all of the plot moments that we knew needed to happen 
and then we spread them all out on the hotel room floor and then just kept rearranging them until the order seemed right. And then we hung the do not clean our room sign on the door very emphatically. Yeah. And we, we more or less had it at that point. And so then the process became about finding the right way to meld our voices together mm-hmm. because you don't want one of you to just be imitating the other. You want to find, you know, what's, what's the good, the good thing that's, that has both of you in it, I suppose. Yeah. Now, a lot of that's just about editing each other. Yeah. Did you always know the world between blinks would be written for middle grade readers? When does an idea announce its readership to you? Is it upon inception or do you find it as you write it? Um, oh, that's a really interesting question. A lot of this, I, f- I feel like my answers are going to make me sound like I think about this stuff a lot more than I actually do. Well, that's the um, art of interviewing. You're, you're, you're sure. feigning being an expert for half an hour <laughs> and then you hang up and you're like, oh, my God. I, I know what I'm doing. I said, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I guess like to some, I, I sort of, on one hand, you know, I definitely do that. On the other hand, I shy away from it a little because I remember when I was starting and everyone sounded like they knew what they were doing and I thought that because I didn't, yeah, I shouldn't be doing it. Mm-hmm. And so I sometimes think it's very comforting to hear people who appear, you know, like, you know, they've done, they've written plenty of books. They, if anyone's going to know what they're doing, it should probably be them. Uh, be like, oh, I don't know, man, I just sort of, you know, the vibe, Your Honour. Um, I never once considered well between blinks ever as anything other than middle grade it was never it just simply never was anything else yeah and I'm, I'm kind of sitting here now having little brain fireworks being like oh what would that be if it was if it was YA but I think in this case um the stuff that we wanted to explore was was very middle grade and also we wanted it to be fun we wanted it to be a really funny charming series mm-hmm. and you know the talks about big stuff but it's not an issue book by any stretch it's a funny adventure you know with a Tasmanian tiger sidekick who likes cake and it was always it was always it was always so fun that I think it had to be middle grade yeah now you said it was very middle grade to you what is that what is middle grade and YA like what are the distinctions that sort of separate those categories for you at least um, good question. I think some some of it I think is is content and theme. Yeah. Um, I don't think that you write down to younger kids, but I think that what they're interested in is different. And I think that, you know, it's not so much what they're ready for as as what they want you to talk to them about. You know, some of the stuff that teenagers are worrying about, you know, 10-year-olds just don't care yet. And yeah. so there's no point writing to them about it because, you know, they'll deal with that when they're 14 and, and you know, confronting their own internal crises like the rest of us. But, you know, right now they've got other questions. I once heard someone say that uh, middle grade is about saving the world and YA is about saving yourself. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not sure that that's completely true, but I do think that in middle grade you are figuring out your place in the world. Yeah. And you know how you're going to relate to it, and and how you're going to interact interact with it and move through it. Whereas in YA, I think you are at a time in your life when you're defining who you are, and 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 I think that's why adults come back to YA a lot. Mm-hmm. Is that um, I once heard Sarah Reese Brennan say that young adult literature is the literature of transformation, and I like that because I think you know we're all always transforming. 
whether it's, you know, first day at school or like first day picking your kid up from school and you don't know anyone, or whether it's like your first date or your first date after your divorce, Mm. we're all constantly sort of trying to figure out who we are. And so I think, you know, I think that's one of the things in YA that, you know, is is, is why the A half of the readership, you know, continues to show up. I think in middle grade, you're working out the world more and, and finding your own agency. Now, you mentioned that you worked on this at the same time as working on, you know, the other side of the sky, duology, and I'm certain that you were working on an Aurora book at the same time. Mm -hmm. Is it challenging bouncing between YA and middle grade? And how do you keep yourself firmly on the appropriate side of the divide when telling a particular story? Uh, I think it's definitely a muscle that you build over time, that's for sure. And for me, it's usually what will happen is I'll go back into the manuscript and I'll go back a little and I'll read my way into what I'm about to write. Mm-hmm. And that allows me to sort of get myself back into the headspace and, and pick up the language of this book and pick up, you know, the, the rhythm of how it goes and the, the sort, you know, the humour and, and find the characters' voices. And then by the time I get to, you know, the blank line, I'm ready to fill it in because I've sort of eased back into it. Um, But I do, I sort of try to work on one project a day rather than flipping back and forth during the day. Mm -hmm. Um, Right right now, the exception is that I am just from six to eight every morning. I, you know, I get up and I'm barely awake and I sort of stumble off to my laptop and I just work on the solo YA each morning. And it's just slowly, almost like someone else is writing it, some other version of me. It's just building each morning. And then I have breakfast and I, you know, say good morning to the family and play with my daughter for a little while. And then I sit down and I'm like, right, what are we writing today? And it's almost like the earlier part of the day didn't happen. So it's a very strange experience, but I'm enjoying it. Mm-hmm. Now, it makes my heart sing to see the world mm-hmm. between blinks be so embraced upon release by readers. What is mm-hmm. the feeling you want to leave them with when they're done with the first book? Oh, gosh. Um I mean, it's been amazing. The, the reception in, in Australia has really knocked our socks off. Ryan is extremely cross that she's not able to come here and join in the party at the moment. Uh, but she's in the States, so there she shall stay. Um, I always try very hard not to tell people how they should respond to my books. I want them to, to respond in whatever way feels right to them. But I hope that they laugh mm-hmm. while they're reading it and... I hope that I hope that they they think about that stuff I was talking about that they they think about maybe what they hold on to and what they let go of and and when it's okay and necessary to do both of those things but I don't I don't want to give them an answer because I think the answer is different for every one of us. Yeah. And how many books can we expect in the series? It's another good question. Uh, we've handed in the draft of book 2 to our editor and we're we're waiting on editorial notes right now. Uh, Ryan and I would certainly like to keep writing it, but as is often the case in publishing, uh, we need we need enough writer, enough readers to pick it up for our publishers. I think that's a good idea. So right now there's two and watch this space. Maybe there'll be more. Fingers crossed. Has it gotten any easier waiting for editorial advice? Uh, I mean, look, I usually just go and write another book, which isn't always the best idea. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, obviously I'm not good at waiting at all. Um, 
I do, I'm pretty good at just putting things out of my head once they're not with me. But I, you know, I don't tend to kind of edit them while I wait. I tend to just forget they exist so that when they come back, I can kind of get a fresh look at them. But I think that probably is partly because I fire something off and then go, right, okay, what's next in the queue? And away I go. But I don't necessarily recommend my approach. Now, I'm dreading asking this final question because your to-do mm-hmm. list will give me a rash. <laughs> but what is next for Amy Kaufman? Um, you won't get a rash. I'm actually pretty chill for the next little while. Because, um, I mean, I've been very busy. You know, I've released four books and a novella into this pandemic of ours. Uh, we did Battleborn, which was the last Elementals. We did Blinks. We did... Uh, aurora burning and um we did the other side of the sky so i now i get a little break i've got aurora three that i just nearly said the name of um coming out before the end of the year yeah and then in 2022 we early 2022 we'll see the sequel to the other side of the sky and we'll see the next world between blinks book uh and beyond that nothing's announced it's all top secret I mean, I've literally been talking about writing it, so it's not that secret. But, <laughs> you know, then then I get a little quiet time to nestle down and get some writing done. So it's going to be nice. I've, I mean, I'm three and, four, three and four books a year is a lot. I think I'm going to sort of more like shoot for two going forward. Yeah, look, as someone who was destroyed by two books, I think, I think <laughs> two is more reasonable. <laughs> But, yeah, thank you so much for joining us on Words and Nerds, Amy. As always, whether talking to you professionally or personally, this has been an absolute pleasure. If this podcast has piqued your interest in Amy's work, there's likely a whole wall devoted to her at your local library and bookstore. Her latest, The World Between Blinks, comes highly recommended. Please stay safe. <laughs>